Aloha, my name is Maya Sutoro. I'm a peace and justice educator and faculty specialist at the Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm so pleased to bring you these conversations with change makers and influencers from the front lines of our communities. I truly believe their voices will deepen our curiosity and conviction and help us to consider things we haven't considered before and be innovative in our thinking. Although their opinions in no way represent the organizations where I work, I'm very excited to share them with you as I feel certain they'll help us to refresh our gaze, revisit our assumptions, and take action in brave new ways. Listeners, let me tell you a little bit about Sam Schulte. Sam is an educator and advocate, a prolific writer with profound ideas, an extraordinary champion for innovation in education and media. With a career that started in the classroom, he's now worked well beyond the classroom worldwide. Today, he's a partner at 180 Studio, a global design collaborative dedicated to advancing people's understanding of the future of learning and what that requires. He was the national director of the Forum for Education and Democracy, a Washington, D.C.-based educational think tank. He is also the founding director of the Five Freedoms Project, a national organization that equips local educators with the leadership development, coaching, and support they need. Before founding the Five Freedoms Project, Sam spent five years at the First Amendment Center as a co-director of the First Amendment Schools Program, a national K-12 reform initiative. He came to the center from the public school system of New York City, where he taught English and history. He also taught in an independent school in Brooklyn. He worked as a speechwriter in the United States Department of Education during the Obama administration, and his writing has appeared in magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and USA Today. He's written for Oscar and Grammy award-winning artists and has been a periodic contributor to CNN. Additionally, he is the author, co-author of seven books, a co-producer of the PBS documentary film, 180 Days, Hartsville, and co-creator of the 10-part online film series, A Year at Mission Hill. So that is a lot, Sam. And this is the first time that we are doing an interview in this way today. I'm at the studio at UH Manoa, and Sam, who's just returned from Istanbul, is with us virtually connecting via Zoom. Sam, we are so glad to have you be a part of this series. Uh, you have long been one of my favorite thinkers, educators, innovators, always so expansive and creative and connected. And after more than a decade of knowing you, I am personally excited to learn more today about your work toward our shared endeavors. Thank you, Maya. It's so good to be here and crazy to hear one's adult life rattled off like that mm -hmm. and crazier still to think that you and I have known each other for 10 years now. More than, yes. Will you start by introducing yourself to our community here at Brave Through by sharing the story of your earth and water and a little bit about the journey that has led you to us today and helped you to define your destiny and identity? I will. And because it's you asking the question, the first way that I thought about this question, which I don't know that I've ever answered in quite this way before, is that. I was born Sam Johnstone, not Sam Shaltain. I was the child of two high school sweethearts who got married and then divorced very young. As a two-year-old, I was living with my mom and apparently 
latching on to any adult male that would come through. And at one point, my mom met and started dating Vic Shaltane. And the love affair was as much between me and him as it was between my mom and him. And so when I was five, they got married and he legally adopted me, which I think is relevant to the question because the question is about identity. So I guess my identity begins with the fact that my name changed within the first five years of, of life and all that that brings with it. So I think to some degree, uh, from my earliest days, I have been in search of, and what I've been in search of is all kinds of things, in search of ballast, in search of a clear sense of place and meaning. And I think probably what led me to education was the knowledge that education is the place that people, in theory at least, get to find their place and their purpose and their sense of identity. So I can't think of a better uh, landscape for me to kind of construct my own sense of meaning and purpose in adult life than that. I love how beautifully you're articulating a journey that we all endeavor to take as uh, learners and that of uh, naming ourselves and finding the the freedom through connection to do so in a variety of ways, presumably over the course of a lifetime. You certainly have had many lifetimes in terms of your your work and career. Can you tell me how do you define the work that you do at this point, you know, and what it means to you, given the story you just told? Have you changed the way that you think about um, the journey of your work? Yeah, I would say it keeps changing. I hope it keeps changing. So what I'm doing now, as you mentioned, is I'm a partner in a design firm, 180 Studio. And so my business partner is an architect, which means that half of the work that we do is literal school design projects around the world. A big hole in the ground, a moonshot moment for a community, and trying to help them think about of all the things we can do, what must we do? But the other half of our work is more grounded in my experience as a writer and a filmmaker. And so that half is about storytelling. It's about using multiple forms of media in order to try to set the conditions for epiphany. And I mean that for myself as much as for anybody else. So I would say the through line of all of these projects is whether it's a building and a hole in the ground or a book or a film, the idea is how do we set the conditions to create the greatest likelihood that the greatest number of people may start to think and feel differently about this thing that they've thought and felt the same way about for 100 years, which is our form of of schooling. And so any way that we're able to push on that, those, that kind of unconscious shared set of assumptions that I think keeps us all a little stuck in place, then that's the kind of work that I want to be a part of. Yeah, I think that's really important work. It's harder than one might imagine to create and sustain real innovation. We've known for a long time how to educate, but it's 
hard to impact the system, isn't it? So I, I want to ask, how do you prioritize and make this good change manifest in terms of storytelling? You you mentioned that there's a effort in stories that help us to what, what I call wash our eyes, to see things in new ways. And obviously, a good part of what you're doing is helping people to literally shift their gaze through design, design thinking. I find that there are so many places that have remained stagnant and, and where uh, old ideas are entrenched. You know, how, what is the process of manifesting change? I think the, the the simplest and most succinct way to put it is start anywhere and follow it everywhere. Uh, the slightly longer way to put it is I think ultimately any change effort has to be about helping people ask and answer two questions. So what and now what? And one of those is primarily logical and pragmatic, and the other is emotionally charged and therefore potentially fraught. And, and so the so what is the emotional question. Why should I care? Why do we even need to bother? That's not a rational argument. That's an argument that's grounded in deeper senses of, of identity, of who we are, of who we must become. And that is a different kind of unpacking that is much more about deep internal reflection, both individual and collective. And I think the mistake that we make a lot of times in change efforts is because that work is hard and because it's less predictable and because it's really less manageable, we like to conveniently think that we can just skip it and get to the now what. But we can't meaningfully implement any kind of new way of thinking about teaching and learning until we've wrestled with the emotional implications of how we've been thinking about it up to that point. And they're just, there, there is no shortcut outside of that. So that's why for us, the story always precedes any strategy or planning. You need both but you have to understand the sequence in which they have to occur. In every classroom, I try to end each class with a so what. What have we learned? Why does it matter? How are we going to use it? What does it mean to us? And I love that question is asked and important. You and I have also, I think, long valued place-based, uh, culturally responsive education that moves beyond the walls of the classroom. What do you wish that educators knew about the significance of this you know, place-based or community and culturally responsive uh, learning and that moves beyond textbooks? I mean, there's so much to say about this. To some degree, I feel this is the missing link in not only our work as educators, but our our sense of ourselves as a species. You know, like we've in the beginning, we knew everything was connected. And then along the way, some of us changed our minds. And, and so as a result now, so many of us, by us, I mean homo sapiens, right, are lost, are, are disconnected from the original indigenous wisdom that bound us all not only to one another, but to the natural world. We were not apart from it. We were a part of it. And so to some degree, becoming grounded 
in one's place and in the wisdom of that place and all of the ways the wisdom of a place can be captured from its people to its flora, to its fauna, to its stories, to its buried bones. That's the way we find our way back to a better understanding of how to kind of live in right relationship with the world. So um, one would like to think that at the center of any meaningful school change effort would be an effort to more explicitly be grounded in the wisdom of place, which I know is something that happens much more naturally and continuously in Hawaii and is in is scarce in most of the rest of the places where I work. Can you talk a little bit about whether or how the pandemic might have shifted that relationship to place-based education that many people uh, have in their minds? Yes, with the caveat that when I think about uh, what COVID will, what, what its legacy will be, I fluctuate wildly between feeling um, hopelessly pessimistic and cautiously optimistic. So I think the hopelessly pessimistic part speaks for itself. You just have to look around. But the the cautiously optimistic part is um, I, I too have seen a little bit of what you've described, that the ways in which there have been a lot of, um, for those of us that are lucky enough to have not lost loved ones, to have not been horribly sick ourselves, there have been some unintended gifts in this kind of forced grounding. And I'll use myself as an example. And it's kind of, I mean, the good news is it's it's become almost stereotypic, meaning so many other people have had this experience. So I live in a part of DC where we we moved into this house a few years ago. And there's a pretty big backyard that I had never really investigated. And in the first few weeks of COVID, I had always wanted to, but you know, for my adult life, I've been traveling on average like once a week and then you're home and you want to be with your kids and your kids don't necessarily want to be out in the backyard. And so you're playing in the driveway, but for whatever reason, I, I made that my project. And so for hours every day, I was on all fours with my hands deep into this soil that up to this point I had kind of benevolently ignored, thinking about how I can make it fertile and start to grow food. And there's something so wonderfully meditative and calming about being out in the natural world. Of course, we know there's lots of research that confirms why this is so calming because this is the environment to which all of us come from and which there's still a deep yearning in us to return to. And I know that lots of other people have had that situation. And it's just as true being, being with one's family with no interruption for months. I feel like there was stages that my family went through and I feel like many families went through. There was always... There was a low point, you know, where you just kind of all wanted to kill each other and you needed space. And then getting to the other side of that, I feel like we've all become much 
closer. We've all become much more attuned to one another. We've all become much more attuned to the particular tribe that we are. So when I'm cautiously optimistic, I like to think that there's some of those lessons from the COVID era that we will still hold on to, even as the machinery of the modern world starts to pick up its pace again. I certainly hope so, but it is going to require a lot of intentionality and a lot of work on all of our parts to make that so. And as you are intimating, you know, the sense of disconnection has been great and isolation. And I know that young people are struggling with mental health and separation from community and the storytelling that uh, helps us to feel grounded in our beloved community. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the future of remote learning and whether distance learning will help us to solve problems and be solutionaries and engage in grassroots diplomacy or you know is this a tool that you value um, in spite of your uh, deep reverence for learning that is connected to both nature and community yeah, it's a good question. I want to answer it by way of sharing an insight I just learned from somebody that I was working with in Istanbul. You mentioned it briefly, but you know, we're we're working with a community there. It's an existing school and they're uh, redesigning their high school building. And so we were just there in person for a week, but in the month leading up to it, we had maybe 30 different Zoom meetings with students, with faculty, with the staff, the cleaning and maintenance crews, alumni. And all of these folks were just asking them, you know, of all the schools in the world you could have chosen, why'd you choose this one? And what keeps you there? And if we start to imagine the ways in which the world is changing, what are the ways in which you think your school might need to change in order to really prepare these kids for the world they're entering, as opposed to the one we remember? And then just kind of dreaming a little bit in the future, like, okay, five years from now, if this really works, what's it going to look like? What are we going to see? But as you might imagine, through those conversations, we learn a ton, and there's lots of different perspectives offered. And this one person said, you know, we've had this experience of remote learning and lots of other people that, you know, are in the professional worlds have had the experience of remote work. But this person said the future is not in remote working and learning environments. The future is in hybrid environments. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, the fact that I don't need to travel to Istanbul 17 times in order to do all of this. Like, not only is that better for me and my family, it's better for the environment. And again, one of the gifts of COVID is it's made us all very comfortable in this medium of doing work on Zoom, having people in different locations. And so I think that's going to stay and that's good. And the biggest mistake we could make is if thinking that the, the, the ultimate convenience of that, the ultimate cost effectiveness of that is such that therefore all we need to do is live in the virtual world. So there has to be a blend kind of like what I just described where 
I suppose we could have done everything we just did the last week in Istanbul virtually. But what was most important, aside from the professional work that was able to get done, was the time that we were able to spend with our new Turkish friends and colleagues, developing those just deeper bonds of humanity that are ultimately going to sustain and drive any of the work that we do. So I would like to think that as we think about schools, we think about it the same way and even think about it with regard to the buildings themselves, right? Like thus far, we've always thought about school is a, is a singular place. If I go to Punahou, I go to that campus. But I keep thinking of like Wildflower Montessori, which is this network of Montessori schools in Cambridge where each school in the network is the size of a single classroom. So in other words, it's going into like a storefront that maybe before had been a footlocker or a frozen yo, and it's repositioned so that it's that school fills or fits 20 kids, two teachers, and one artist in residence. And Part of what I'm thinking about is, well, what would it look like if schools started imagining different outposts where they can provide opportunities for people to come together, be in relationship, and offer different ways of teaching and learning together, sometimes fully remote, sometimes in a smaller kind of satellite environment, sometimes at the mothership. I'd like to think that we're going to be able to open that world of possibilities up a little bit more broadly than we have up to this point. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the best education learning you've seen uh, that is connected to both nature and community? So the first school that comes to mind, and it's a school that I did write about in Seed and Spark, it's a public charter school in Chicago. It's called the Academy for Global Citizenship, and it was founded explicitly to reconnect young people, um, particularly young people from parts of the city that are really deprived of natural beauty to get reconnected to the natural world, knowing that from that all kinds of good things will happen. And to be clear, this school has done amazing work in the environments in which they found themselves as nascent public charter schools. They, first they were in a converted dentist office, then they were in a former barrel factory. Uh, the playground that these kids go out to is a formerly a parking lot. They've been able to set up wind turbines, they're collecting the rainwater, they're eating food every day that is made from scratch and is healthy. But there's limits, you know, as one of the teachers said to me, there's only so far you can help kids to fall in love with nature if they're never in it. And so now what that school is doing is they found a parcel of land uh, also in the city, a place that has been neglected. It used to be a public housing project that has since been raised. And they are going to be building what they are describing as the world's first living school a school that is net positive, a school with, a, with an actual farm and farm to table store, a school where the entire curriculum is about helping people understand how to live 
sustainably and compassionately and a school community that is doing all of this for the same per pupil expenditure that any other Chicago public school would have. And to me, that's the most important point. So it isn't gonna be some amazing, beautiful school that was only possible because they went out and raised $10 million. It's the school is their kind of love letter to the rest of us to say, if we can do this on the per pupil expenditure of Chicago public schools, you can too. So let's all think more intentionally about how to do that. In your most recent blog post, you actually tell the story of the Astum Way in Indonesia. Can you share a little bit about what we can learn from this initiative that might help people to reconnect with nature in a powerful way? Yeah, so I first learned about them when I was visiting Bali to see the Green School. And the Green School, as many of your listeners may know, has a bit of an international reputation. And part of that is very well earned because the campus itself is constructed out of bamboo. So it is a breathtaking physical place. And my guide when I was there was uh, an expat Canadian, a guy named uh, Tim, who had moved his whole family there to be a part of the school community because he felt he saw in its ethos the things that he and his family were missing in their community in Canada. And then as Tim was there longer, he came to see the ways in which, despite the best of intentions, the Green School community was largely a community made up of people not native to Bali. And that a lot of the kids and the communities that immediately surrounded Green School were not able to kind of receive the same benefits. And so what Tim has begun to do is think about creating experiences by which people, both foreigners visiting Bali, but particularly um, indigenous Balinese youth, can directly experience some of the natural beauty, the wisdom, the storytelling, the sense of connection to the land, to sustainability, and to right relationship that are at risk of otherwise being lost with the you know continuing onslaught of kind of modern capitalist consumerist culture. And so that's another example, um, but there are so many. I mean, I know we, we both have Dan Kinzer in common and the work that Dan is doing in Hawaii with Pacific Blue Studio is really important. There are schools all throughout the world that are increasingly thinking about how to not only teach kids to, to love nature and to be in nature, but to literally use nature as a model for reimagining the way that we think about the systems of teaching and learning that we design and live in. And, and that's, I would say, the work that makes me most excited. I imagine for some of our listeners, the notion of biomimicry may be commonplace, especially uh, those who have grown up with a deep connection to Aina or land or nature, but for others, this may be a new or unfamiliar concept. So would you please share in your opinion why biomimicry is an important concept uh, for um, education and, and for community and how we can perhaps start to weave this into our daily lives and practice? 
Yeah. So I was having a conversation a few months ago with Janine Benyus, who uh, is the author of the book that introduced the concept of biomimicry to most of us called Biomimicry. And Janine puts it pretty succinctly. She said, life creates conditions conducive to life. So part of the thinking is, if life creates conditions conducive for life, then what would happen if we humans started more intentionally designing our systems to be conducive to life? Now, the irony, of course, as we're talking about this with education as the backdrop, is many schools for both the kids that attend them and the adults that work there are uh, draining of life. They're not affirming. They're things we have to navigate and survive, not things that are generative and giving us a greater sense of, of self or purpose. The, the way that biomimicry works is it's a, it's a way of trying to very intentionally look at the way, let's say, a spider designs a web and think about what types of insights that process might have for how we think about bridge building or the ways in which an ecosystem always maintains a sense of dynamic balance. So trying to better understand what is the dynamic balance that we must seek and maintain in our own systems so that they can truly be living systems. And one of the things that I found most fascinating as I've gone deeper into this is seeing the work of Lots of people that have been doing uh, this work for, for decades, people like Fritjof Capra, who have identified these core design principles of Mother Nature. And when I first encountered these principles, the thing that struck me as an educator was that the language that was used to describe them could have been taken straight from a conversation between teachers. That the, the three primary principles that are required in order to create seeds for growth are identity, information, and relationships. That once those conditions are in place, you're creating the possibility for emergence, which is basically the seeds for change. And that then, once you have a dynamic living system that is constantly emerging and shifting, you have the seeds for regeneration, the patterns, the processes, the structures that must go into place in order to allow something to endure. And what's been really interesting is beginning to think about how an awareness of those design principles can start to change and inform how we think about the work we do in schools on behalf of kids and on behalf of one another. What is the mission of Seed and Spark and what are the stories that Seed and Spark is telling? So two years ago, my business partner Chung Lee and I set out in trying to answer a question for a research project that we knew would culminate in a book. It ended up being Seed and Spark, but we had no idea that that's the direction it would go. The initial question was, what are the irreducible elements of a transformational learning environment? So in other words, in the same way that our genetic code has been irreducibly a, it's brought down irreducibly to A, G, C, and T. And there may be lots of combinations, but every aspect of our genetic code is some combination of A, G, C, and T. What's the A, G, C, and T of a transformational learning environment? And 
And so we set out in search of a way to better understand that in the hopes that in, again, setting our own conditions for epiphany that we could then try to share with others. It seems obvious now that that search would lead us to the natural world, but we didn't ask that question thinking that's where we would end up. And yet, of course, that's where we ended up. And so the result is Seed and Spark. And it's our way of trying to translate those seven design principles of nature in ways that help people begin to wrap their head around what it means to use nature as a model. And what's been beautiful about it is, so, you know, the book is out there. It's a beautiful book because my partner is a designer. And if you want a physical copy, you can buy one, but anybody can have a digital copy for free if they go to seedandspark.live. And then we thought, well, if people are reading and using this book, what if during this COVID period, we could maybe form a meaningful, virtual, global community of fellow travelers that are interested in trying to better understand what these principles mean and what implications they have for our lives and work together. So we did that. We launched this network on uh, January 21st on 121.21. We've been meeting every Sunday all year. We've had a number of weekday events where people like Janine Benyus or Bill McKibben or Adrian Marie Brown come and hang out for an hour. Uh, every meeting starts with music or, or a poem. Now that we're almost at the end of this process, I would say it's true that people are coming to learn about using nature as a model, but really what's been most beautiful about this network is that it's a global community of people who show up every Sunday with intention and attention to listen to and be wonderfully, lovingly curious about one another. And that feels like a very special gift. As an innovator, Sam, you seem to have worked seamlessly across sectors. Where do you see interesting overlap? or opportunities for collaboration across sectors to improve educational and learning systems? Well, you know, part of the structure of Seed and Spark was in every chapter, we have examples from art, science, and school culture. And so I, I think in particular, I'm struck by the collaborative possibilities of artists and scientists, um, people coming together to imagine the double helix as choreography or quantum mechanics as a form of portraiture. Any way that we can better reconnect the abstract and logical sides of ourselves, the left hemisphere and right hemisphere sides of ourselves, the literal and metaphorical sides, I feel like that's the particular purview of art and science in a wonderful mashup. Are we seeing large-scale educational systems evolve and adapt and take some of these ideals and mindset and metrics and vision you are speaking about and championing? Or should we really just hope for the continuation of small, incremental, uh, innovative change when and where we can find it. 
Yeah, I don't think we should be thinking about large scale systems anymore. Um, in fact, one of the questions that I asked the people that have been a part of the Seed and Spark expedition most commonly was just to weigh in on this idea of scale. And I asked this question of Peter Senge, who, for anybody that doesn't know, he's the author of the book Fifth Discipline. He's one of the kind of masters of systems thinking, really one of the more important thinkers that we have had in the past 75 years. And Peter Senge said, you know, I think any question of scale is foolish. He said the point is not to go bigger, but to go deeper. There's other lessons like that from the natural world. One of the points that Adrian Marie Brown makes is how we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. And everything nature teaches us through fractals or even just through the recursive patterns that nature loves, whether it's the Fibonacci sequence or a chameleon's tail or a nautilus shell, is this idea of self-similarity. So I think the, the primary lesson for us is to go deeper, not bigger, and to recognize that the most important work to be done is wherever we are right there. That's why the, the challenge is to start anywhere and follow it everywhere. Listeners, Sam will be sharing some resources with us. They will help us to drive this work forward. If the ideas resonate with you, I invite you to start your journey by reading more, joining the Seed and Spark community, and finding ways to impact your local learning environment. Join me for future conversations with really thoughtful, creative people who are helping us to wash our eyes and nourish a sense of possibility around difficult social challenges. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and stay in the conversation.